The story is told that a visiting minister was substituting for the famed pastor, Henry Ward Beecher. A large audience had assembled to hear the popular pastor. At the popular or the appointed hour, the visiting minister entered the pulpit. Learning that Beecher was not to preach, several began to move toward the doors. The visiting minister stood and called out, All who have come here today to worship Henry Ward Beecher may now withdraw from the church. All who have come to worship God, keep your seats. No one then left. That same announcement could have been made in countless churches. We could say it here. If you came here to worship anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then you may now withdraw from the church. But if you've come here today to worship God, keep your seats. In fact, I would go even further than that. I would say, fall on your knees, like the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4, which says, The four living creatures cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and because of Your will they existed And were created. Worship is the attitude and the activity of heaven, and it should be the attitude and the activity of Christ's church and his people. Every time we meet together, we should have that focus in our mind to worship God. But that focus should be in your mind already, individually. From the waking of your day to the retiring of your day. That entire day set aside to worship God, to glorify God, no matter what you're doing. But unfortunately, as A.W. Tozier says, the greatest tragedy in the world today is that God has made man in his image and made him to worship him made him to play the harp of worship before the face of God day and night, but he has failed God and dropped the harp. It lies voiceless at his feet. I hope that doesn't describe any of us this morning. I hope that we have not failed God in our worship this morning. But it can happen. And of course, you have to ask yourself if you drop the harp. If you use your life for any purpose other than worship, no matter how noble that purpose may seem, you're guilty of a grave sin. It's the same sin that 
of an Israelite who misused the holy incense. It was a sin so serious that under the law, it was punishable by death. When I hear something like that, I immediately think of the sons of Aaron who had offered up strange fire before the Lord, and God killed them. That's found in Leviticus 10. Let me just read the first three verses. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded him. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. That could have been any of us. I think when you begin to offer up strange fire to the Lord and you offer up something by which God has not commanded, then you are reinventing the wheel. You are reinventing ministry. God has told us in His Word how He is to be worshipped. God has told us in His Word the attitude that we are to have when we worship. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the whole of our lives is to be the worship of God. But it must be worship that is correctly prescribed by God and by His Word. There are many articles, there are many blogs, there are many videos, books, sermons, you name it, on worship. But the best book that tells us what God says about worship is, of course, the Bible. And if the whole of your life is not worship, then what is it? Paul Washer gives us the answer when he says this, and this is really convicting, and I sent it out this morning. You've read it. He says, Sunday morning in America is the greatest hour of idolatry in the whole week. It's also the greatest hour of hypocrisy. And you have to ask, why would he say something like that? Well, I believe that people come to church for different reasons, different purposes. But we've come for the purpose of worship, and much of what we do is anything but worship to God or worship to Christ. We tend to worship everything but God. Yet we have it all clothed in the guise of religiosity. Some worship the pastor, some worship the music, some worship the style, some worship the other people, some worship the sound, the videos, some worship the streaming, some worship the style of the music or the color of the paint on the walls or the furniture. And really the biggest problem with, with that is, is revealing that what they are really worshiping is themselves. If we don't worship God during the week, then what are we doing on Sunday morning? If we were created by God for the purpose of worshiping Him, then we need to ask some questions about our worship, like what is it? And where and how is it to take place? 
Well, the place that the Spirit of God has chosen for us this morning to look is in John chapter 4, so I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. And as we turn there, just so that you have the entire story in your mind, I'm going to be, begin reading at verse 1. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it? that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank it of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. In this story that we have just read, we learn of a woman who got it all wrong. She had the wrong view of marriage, according to verse 18. She had the wrong view of divorce, according to verse 18. She had the wrong view of worship, and therefore the wrong view of God, and the wrong view of salvation. 
I hope that we're not in that same category. So before we look closely at Jesus' definition of worship, let's just begin by defining what worship is. Because everyone has a different thought, a different opinion of what worship is. Many times worship is equated with music. And the people that play the music are called the praise and worship band. Sometimes the church itself is called the place of worship. We have different ideas, different views. But we can certainly say this, according to verse 21, whatever worship is, it's to the Father. Verse 22 is also related to salvation. In verse 24, it's something that the Father desires from others in spirit and truth. Worship is mentioned in verses 20 to 24 ten times. Ten times. And the word that's used there is the word that means to, to bow down, to prostrate oneself. It's even used to kiss the hand. There's another word that's used for worship, and it's the word latruo, which suggests rendering honor and paying homage. But both terms have the idea of giving, because worship is giving something to God. Many times we think uh, we come to church, it's... What can we get? In fact, somebody might ask you at the end of the day, how was church today? And then we begin to think in our mind, what did I get from church today? Maybe the preacher wasn't up to his par and stumbled all over himself. Already been doing that. Maybe he's distracted. Maybe the music was a little distracting. Maybe I was distracted. But I'm not going to admit that. Because I want to put the blame on other people. We have all kinds of things that, that distract, all kinds of things that, that interfere as we're worshiping the Lord. And we have to work through those. We have to push through it, right? Sometimes it's an impure thought that comes into your mind. Sometimes it's an angry thought. Sometimes it's a sad thought. But you know, it seems to me if we're worshiping God, then we should worship Him His way. And the attitude we should have is certainly sincerity, honesty, and brokenness and openness before Him. But it also should re- include rejoicing, joy. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. But as we worship and the understanding of giving Worship to God, giving something to Him, it's, it's really simply honor and adoration that you're directing toward God. You, you adore Him. You honor Him. Again, we're talking about something that you give to God. Instead of this idea that modern Christianity has about God giving something to you. And let me just say this, God does give to us abundantly. I mean, we have been blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. 
And we have everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have His Holy Spirit. We have the gifts of His Spirit. We have the fruit of His Spirit as we are filled with the Spirit. We have the Word of God which instructs us and tells us about God and about Christ and about the Spirit of God. Tells us what the church is to be, how it is to function, how it is to operate. Tells us about salvation being by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it being a gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. It tells us about repentance. It tells us a lot of things that we need to know. And it certainly does tell us that God has blessed us. But we really need to understand the balance of that truth. We are to render honor and adoration to God, and that should be a consuming, selfless desire to give to God really the essence of the heart of worship. You know, there's a passage in Proverbs chapter 4 that says to guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. And even Jesus said things that proceed out of the heart, and they were sinful things. So if you're guarding your heart, you want to make sure that that's not what's coming out of it, or that's what you're putting in it. We want the Word of God to be that which consumes us. So we have to give ourselves first. Give ourselves first to God. Give ourselves first to the priority of worshiping Him. And then we give Him our attitude. And we give Him our possessions until worship is a way of life. So that you're not caught up in the things of this world. So ascribing worth... To God. So, not only do we need to understand what worship is, we need to understand where it begins. And let me have you to look down at verse 15. Here, the woman is following the dialogue, though she's not understanding the analogy that Jesus is making here about living water and physical water that she would have to keep coming back and drawing for. She doesn't understand that this living water that He is offering and is only found in Him. In fact, she did not really understand who he, who he was until He began to reveal things that she has done in her life. And that was the very message that she took to her people. Come, listen to a man who's told me everything that I have done. Again, she didn't understand that until further in the conversation. But if you look there, as she is saying, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way to here to draw. What does Jesus do? He first begins to open up her eyes to herself. Worship begins when you understand you. Who you are. He said to her in verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And this you have truly said. 
And instead of her responding to that by saying, you're right. How did you know that? You must be a prophet. And then she changes the conversation to talking about worship and talking about the Samaritans and where they worship, Omer Gerizim, and talking about the Jews, where they worship in Jerusalem. Warren Wiersbe says that the only way to prepare the soil of the heart for the seed is to plow it up with conviction. That was why Jesus told her to go get her husband. He forced her to admit her sin. There could be no conviction without, or no conversion without conviction. There must first be conviction and repentance, and then there can be saving faith. Jesus had aroused her mind, stirred her emotions, but he also had to touch her conscience, and that meant dealing with her sin. The phrase, I have no husband, was the shortest statement she made during the entire conversation. And why is that, Wearsby asked? Because now she was under conviction and her mouth was stopped, Romans 3.19. But this was the best thing that could have happened to her. However, instead of listening to Jesus, she tried to get him on a detour by discussing differences between the Jewish and the Samaritan religions. It is much more comfortable to discuss religion than to face one's sins. However, Jesus once again revealed her spiritual ignorance. She did not know who to worship, where to worship, or how to worship. He made it clear that all religions are not equally acceptable before God. That some worshipers act in ignorance and unbelief. The only faith that God will accept is that which came through the Jews. End quote. If we are to understand what it means to worship God, we must understand what sin is. And I'm not going to belabor that point because we just spent four weeks talking about that. But we have to understand it. You know, sin is so blinding to us that as it does its work in our life, we don't always see what it's doing. We don't see the drifting that is caused by it. You know, if you don't spend daily time in the Word of God, you'll begin to drift away from it. You need the Word of God every day. I need the Word of God every day as well. But sin is what expelled man from, gar from the garden. It's what expelled... Lucifer from heaven. But we have to see it for what it is. And we have to have the attitude that we find in Scripture when dealing with it. For example, in Psalm 51, David is confessing his, his sin of murdering Uriah. He's confessing his sin of adultery to Bathsheba. Listen to his heart as he finally comes to this place of confession. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. 
Do you hear the attitude? The attitude is not just God cleanse me and make me clean, but the attitude is verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. That's the attitude that we have to have. Or even the attitude that Isaiah had when he came into the temple and he saw God on his throne in that vision. And what did he do when he saw the seraphim and heard them crying out in antiphonal praise back and forth saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What did he do? He pronounced a curse on himself. He saw the holiness of God. He saw this awesome sight of the angels proclaiming the holiness of God. And all he could do was see how unworthy he was to see this. And to even have that uttered from his lips. Because when he looked at himself, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't even utter these words. Though I believe them with all the fiber of my being. But I'm undone because I just have seen this incredible vision and heard this incredible thing from these angels. And all I can see is myself and pronounce a curse on myself. Woe is me, for I am undone. For I dwell among a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. You know, sometimes I think about this. In fact, I think about it more than sometimes. But sometimes I do wish that God would pull back the veil and just let us see some things. But you know what? It's not going to happen like that. Because the Bible tells us we walk by faith, not by sight. Right? Our attitude towards sin should be that sin is against God. All sin is against God. So worship begins when you understand that. When you understand who you are. Second, worship begins when you understand not only who you are, but understand who Jesus is. I mean, if you go back to verse 19, after Jesus tells her that she's had five husbands, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Really, what else could she say? His knowledge of her life indicated that he had supernatural inspiration. And the only one that she could think about immediately would be the prophets. Even though she had a hope for the Messiah. And then as we read, verse 20, she changes the subject. She gets the subject off herself, the subject off her lifestyle, her sin, and she changes it altogether to talk about worship. Now, this may be problematic in the story, but it's beneficial for us because we get to hear Jesus' definition of worship, right? But to understand who Jesus is, it starts, again, with understanding who you are. And if you'll notice, let me just point out a few verses here. Go down to verse 25. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ, and when he comes, or that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And the he, the pronoun he, is not in the text. The original says, I who speak to you am. He's saying, I am the I am. Where do we hear I am? Well, Moses asked that question of God there at the burning bush, whom shall I say who is sending me? And God says, I am who I am. Jesus used that statement at least seven times in the Gospel of John. We find one of them in here, and we find also one in John eight fifty eight when he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the people understood exactly what he was saying, what he was claiming. Therefore, they picked up stones to, to kill him because that was blasphemy for him to claim to be the I am. But Jesus is the I am. Jesus is the one who spoke to Moses. Jesus is the one in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah saw on the throne, according to John chapter 12. So Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah. You know that the faith teachers deny this reality? Kenneth Copeland said Jesus had never revealed himself as the Messiah to anybody. And see, that just tells you he's reading a totally different Bible, right? Because all of us can see there in verse 26, after she talks about the coming of the Messiah, he says, I who speak to you am. I am the Messiah. And she understood. Verse 28, she left her water pot, went into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Messiah, is it? In a way, it's kind of questioning why she was questioning that when he had just revealed that, but she wanted to hear other people's opinion about it. So what did they do? Verse 30, they went out of the city and they were coming to him. So they went to see for themselves. Again, if you're looking for the Messiah... How are you going to know when he arrives? You know, there are others who have made declarations just like this. John the Baptist in John 1.29 said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27:54 reveals that the centurion and those who were with him said, "Truly this was the son of God." Or even after his resurrection, Jesus made several appearances and one of them was when Thomas was present. He said to Thomas in John 20 verses 27 and 28, "Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing." And Thomas answered and said to him, "My Lord and my what? God." And of course, even the Father God the Father said this in Hebrews chapter 1 of Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. Is the scepter of your kingdom. 
He is speaking to the Son. Your throne, O God. Jesus is the I Am. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord for whom we call upon. Jesus is the one and the only one who can save you. And when you understand His true identity, then you're able to worship Him in truth. Because He is the truth. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me or through me. Or, Acts 4 says, There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is only in Christ. When you come to God, you come to God through Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit that draws you. So he confronts her sin. She changes the subject. Talks about worship. And now let's pick up from there. She says again, verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. This reveals to us, as we get started looking at how we are to worship, is that, first of all, it's not limited to any particular location. That was her question, or her statement, I should say. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That hour that is coming was speaking of His death. And He was revealing that their whole system of worship was about to change. It's really irrelevant where you worship God. It's really not where, but it's how you worship Him that's important. It's not limited to Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, and it's not limited to the church, even though we're not to forsake the church, we're not to forsake the worship of God in the places where the saints gather, and we're not to forsake the worship of God in other places. She had an ignorance of worship. Sometimes I think we have the same ignorance. It's amazing, again, going back to the location, how many people think that I cannot worship until Sunday, or I cannot worship until I get to church. If that's what you think, then it makes me wonder what kind of preparation is being made before you even get there. Or do you wait till you get there? He says in verse 22, You worship what you do not know. They didn't know what they were worshiping. They had created their own religion. People today doing the same thing. 
That's the Satan, satanic lie. You don't have to go to church to worship. I agree with that, but you should be going to church. There's the choirs right here that I'm preaching to. <clears throat> but you need to know whom you're worshiping. Remember when Paul came into Athens and he told them in Acts 17, 22, he says, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. See, they were just like the Samaritans. They didn't know who they were worshiping. In fact, they had a God for everything, so they didn't miss anybody. They didn't want gods offended, pouring out their wrath on them. They were a very polytheistic society, believed in idols and multiplicities of gods. And here Jesus comes along, and then his followers come along and saying the same thing that you need to worship God and God alone. Again, it's like A.W. Tozer says, while God wants us to worship Him, we cannot worship Him just any way we will. The one who made us to worship Him has decreed how we shall worship Him. He accepts only the worship which He Himself has decreed. And that is so true. Again, if you want to know what God wants from us... This is where you're going to find it, right? On the other hand, he says, verse 22, We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. They were told by the prophets. They were told by God Himself. They were told by the Scripture. We're told by the Scripture. But the Samaritans didn't know God. And that is fundamentally basic, that if you're going to worship God, then you need to know Him. And the only way you're going to know Him is through His Son, through Christ. And if you have Christ, as 1 John tells us, then you have the Father also. But if you reject Christ, then you have also rejected the Father See, again, they didn't know Him. They didn't have the full revelation of Him. They couldn't worship in truth. But the Jews did have the full revelation of God in the Old Testament. They knew the God they worshipped because they knew the God they were to worship because He revealed it. And because salvation's truth came first to them, and through them to the world. So Jesus reveals in verse 23 what makes one a true worshiper. Look at verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. 
Spirit and truth. Mentions that two times. Again, worship is not limited to any particular location, but it is focused on the Father, and it is in spirit and truth. In fact, we're told in Philippians 3, in verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So in order to worship Him, you've got to know Him. And that's revealed in the Bible. I meet people that have a pretty loud opinion about the Bible, but then as I talk to them, I find out that they really haven't read it. They're just repeating what they've heard, what other people have said. But if we're going to understand that, then this is where we come, right? So we could say this, worship is not limited to a particular location, but it is limited to the truth. You cannot worship God apart from His Word. You can't worship God apart from the Bible. You can't worship God apart from what the Bible reveals about Him. You can't worship God apart from, as He says there, spirit and truth. And when He talks about worshiping in spirit, that's not a reference to the Holy Spirit. That's a reference to the inward attitude of the heart. Some of your translations may have spirit with a capital S. And they're trying to tell you, the translator's trying to tell you, that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But the text seems to indicate it's not a reference to the Spirit of God. It's a reference to your attitude, your heart. Again, Tozier says, If there is no fear of God in our hearts, there can be no worship of God. And that's why in the last series that we did, I pointed out to you that the key to killing sin in your life is Ephesians 5.18, to be not drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, certain things happen. In fact, we could sum it up by saying that those things that happen are Galatians 5.22-25, through 25, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, it's one fruit. It's not fruits, plural. It's one fruit. You get it all. Love, joy, peace, and so forth. You get it all. So if the Spirit of God is key for us in dealing with our sin, because we're told in Romans 8.13 that the only way that we're going to put to death the deeds of the body is going to be by the Spirit then we also need to understand that He is the key also in our worship. How are we going to have the right attitude to worship without the Spirit? Who is the one that helps us to crucify the flesh with its passions and lusts? Who is the one who aids us in killing sin in our flesh? It's the Spirit of God. Who is the one who brings about the reality of the right attitude that we are to have? It's the Spirit of God. So the reference to truth refers to the worship of God consistent with His revealed Word. 
God does not accept worship of anyone who has a distorted view of who he is. He says in verse 24, God is spirit. Spirit just means here that he doesn't possess flesh and bone. Remember Jesus said a spirit does not have flesh and bones? It means that he is the invisible God, as 1 Timothy 1.17 says. And, and we've said that before when we've looked at passages on the Trinity or made reference to that, that the Father and the Holy Spirit are both spirit. They're both invisible. But when you come to Christ, he is the one who took on flesh, who took on a body. A body was prepared for him. As it says in John 1.14, He was the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you really think about it, that we could not comprehend the invisible God unless He revealed Himself. And He reveals Himself in the Bible as well as in the incarnation of Christ. So God does not accept worship of anyone who has a distorted view of who he is. And God does not accept worship of anyone who has a correct view of him, but has a sinful life. Let me have you to turn over to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. Psalm 15 begins with a question. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a person or a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Right there in that psalm, it talks about our lifestyle. I remember when I was much younger and thought I was a Christian. And somebody asked me one day, was I a Christian? And I remember pausing before I answered. And it was like in that, that moment, my life just kind of flashed before my eyes. And my conclusion was not what I would have normally given, which would have been the answer yes. My conclusion was how could I be a Christian by the way I live? There's nothing in my life that gives glory to God. There was nothing in my life that indicated a transformation of my heart. In fact, what was in my life was habitual sin. But you know, there are a lot of people just like that. But the problem is, is that they come to church. And they never give heed to 
the exhortation to examine themselves because they say, well, you know, I'm I'm a believer. I remember the day that I asked Jesus into my life and I wrote it down in my Bible and And, and that's fine to do that. But does your life match your profession? You say Jesus is your Lord. Does your life demonstrate that Jesus is your Lord? Is that what people see in your life throughout the week? You know, all of us, we just see each other on Sunday. We don't get to see each other during the week unless we make an effort to do that. So in essence, all we have to go by is what we see here. But how do we live? Does our life bring a mockery to Him? Is our life really and truly a life given to worship? So we have to ask some questions. We have to ask, what's the basis of our worship? We have to ask... Do we understand who Jesus is? Because we hear things like this in 1 John 2, and 23. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So you can see what I was saying a moment ago, that you deny Christ, you don't have the Father. And so the Jews today that are still looking for their Messiah and say Jesus is not their promised Messiah, and they say they have the Father, they don't have the Father according to what the Apostle John said here. Do you have a correct view of God? And and do you have a heart that demonstrates that correct view? I mean, you you could be just like the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. They had everything that was right. Except for one thing, and the most important thing. They had left their first love. I mean, they were strong doctrinally. They took those who said that they were apostles and tried them and found out that they were not. I mean, they had right doctrine. But the passion was not there. Another question you can ask, are you sensitive to your sin? And do you confess it? And do you repent of it? And this is what I believe why the Reformers said that you should preach the gospel to yourself every day. Because, beloved, what we want to prevent is drifting. We don't want to drift away. You know, Jerry Bridges, he's with the Lord now, but he was with the Navigators for many, many, many years. In fact, the Bible reading plan that we're doing is one that he put together, the 5 by 5 by 5 program. But I remember that he said in one of his books that, you know, when, when you see a person fall, a big fall, this incredible sin that they fell into, that it didn't happen overnight. What it was, was it, it was a series of compromises. And then he quotes from Song of Solomon and says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's those little things that you give into. We tend to relabel them. We don't just call it sin, we call it white lies. 
We color it. Well, I don't know if lies are white. Sin is more black than white, right? There's no, nothing white as light as truth because in the Bible, white symbolized holiness. I mean, it, it talks about believers at the end of the age being in what kind of robes? White robes. Say anything about black. We have to just make sure that we're not guilty of the very things the Pharisees were guilty of. Jesus said that they were hypocrites in Matthew 15, 7, who draw near to me with their mouth, who honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's what we have to be careful. We don't want to become that. And we don't want to elevate ourselves over the Word of God. We are very rich in this time, in this age, and to have the completed Word of God, the completed Bible, we have no excuse for not knowing the God of the Bible as He's given it to us in abundance. We're not in a foreign country where it's illegal to have a Bible. We're not in a foreign country where they can't even afford a Bible or a few can afford Bibles. In fact, most homes have three, four, five Bibles. Right? I have a good number of print Bibles, let alone digital Bibles, which we all now have access to on our phones or on a, a tablet or the computer. We have access. So, beloved, as you examine your worship today, ask yourself these questions and put yourself in the shoes of this woman. The wonderful thing is, is that she believed. It's very evident she believed. And God transferred her, transformed her, and gave her the living water. And she did what all true believers do. She couldn't keep silent about it. She went back to the city and started telling everyone about Jesus. When's the last time you told someone about Jesus? When's the last time you called them to repent and believe in Christ? It's been a while. You can reveal a couple things as to why. But you know you can change it right now. Confess it as sin to the Lord. Repent. And start sharing the gospel. That's the only reason why when God saves us, He leaves us here. That's the only reason. It's so that we can invite others to Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to look at this portion of Scripture. I pray for each of us that we will examine our worship, examine our hearts. 
Lord, you've given us the truth, and we know your word is the truth. But sometimes our attitude isn't what it should be. And that, Lord, I pray that we will examine this morning. Thank you for each person here. And we praise you in Jesus' name.